Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Chen Julie Wang. My name is Ping, an immigrant from China in 1985. I got my PhD from NYU in comparative literature, author of 15 books of poetry, stories, and translations, emerita professor of poetry at McAllister College. Before I introduce our guest for tonight, please allow me to tell you about the unique series that makes this event possible. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Minneapolis, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and Hennepin County Library as the co-organizer of tonight's event. Thanks also to Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Chen Julie Wang is an Ivy League trained litigator and managing partner of New York City's prestigious Gottlieb and Wang LLP a law firm specializing in advocacy for immigrants and people of color. As an undocumented child of struggling Chinese emigre, Wang had ample reasons to believe her future would not be so bright. During her formative years, the family's illegal status took a toll on everything, their housing stability, her parents' marriage and health, as well as one's own self-worth and identity. These childhood trials formed the basis of one's anticipated debut, Beautiful Country, a heart-rending memoir drafted almost entirely on her iPhone while she commuted between her home and Brooklyn law office. In a start review, publishes weekly raves. While the author's story of pursuing the American dream is undoubtedly timeless. It's her family's triumph in the face of xenophobia 
and intolerance that makes it feel especially relevant today. Beautiful Country hit shelves earlier this month and debuted at number three on the New York Times best-selling list already. After a short reading by our guest and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask a question anonymously, you can also send a private message to Clubbook here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Let's welcome Chen Julie Wang. Thank you so much for coming to the book club tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ping, and thank you for that kind introduction. I want to thank everyone for being here tonight and joining me. Um, I'm going to open with a very short reading. I don't if you have the book, it's chapter nine, Lights, and it begins on 104, page 104. When we emerged from underground, I was shocked to see that the sun had set, but it took me a second to notice under the lights all around us. We walked a few blocks in throngs of people so thick, it felt like we were back in Beijing. Then mama led me to the base of the largest, brightest tree I had ever seen. The tree was surrounded by buildings, perfectly framed as I looked up at it against the night sky. Like the one in class, this tree wore decorations, balls, and figures of all kinds. Some were lit from within like Halloween decorations while others had glitter and still others shone with their bright colors alone. I went up to one, a gold ball that was so shiny and large that I saw my own face in it. In the reflection, my eyes shone back at me a sparkle that I would carry in my body for the rest of the night. Mama had still more to show me, so she walked me onto the wide streets that had signs telling us that we were on Fifth Avenue. It was the cleanest and fanciest street I'd ever seen in Meiguo. The storefronts were huge and tall, with men dressed in suits at the doors. Some of them were white, some black, but none Chinese. We stopped in the middle of a crowd of passersby, admiring the front of a store that had strings of lights adorning its face. With a twinkle here and a flash there, the lights announced that a show was about to begin. I held my breath and waited, gripping Mama's hand. Out of the corner of my eyes, I caught her smiling as the music began and filled the street. Slowly at first, and then all of a sudden, more lights appeared, one light bulb giving birth to another, then another before spreading across the entire building, each bulb dancing to the beat of the music. And though we'd never heard the melody before, soon Mama and I began moving with the swaying crowd, shaking gently to the beat, joy vibrating through us. The whole world was dancing, and so were we. We exchanged another smile, and I marveled how, in all the stories of the gold-paved Meigua and the dangerous Meigua, no one in China knew about the lights of America, about how they were so delightful that they could stop us in the middle of the street, in the middle of our lives and our worries, in the middle of strangers living stranger lives, all just to fill us with music and hope. Tracing it all back, I know now that it was the moment I first became enamored with the idea 
of America. It was the first time I saw the beauty and glamour of the country and really of New York City, though at that point the two were one and the same to me. The lights and the joy among the crowd that night showed me all that the city was and had to offer, a completely different face of America than the one we had come to know. Finally, the beautiful country's name made sense. Thank you so much for this beautiful uh, reading. I just like, almost like sat through the entire book and just gripping, I was just like, it's breathtaking. Thank you so much for having the courage and the strength to write this book. And um, beautiful country, right? And as a Chinese, I know beautiful country is the literal translation uh, of America. And could you say a few words about that? Sure. Um, at first, we, my agent and I weren't sure what to name the book. Mm -hmm. And we both separately came up with Beautiful Country. And once we did, it seemed like that could be the only title it ever, ever could have had. And we really wanted to pick at the irony mm -hmm. of the name, the concept of Megua, Beautiful Country. Mm -hmm. The very idea from outside the United States that America is a beacon of light, a beacon of beauty, a land of golden opportunity, and how in some ways it is that, but in so many other ways, it is not. It is a place where there's a lot of deprivation, a lot of inequality, a lot of bias and prejudice. And I wanted to be fully honest in this book, not just about who I am and who my parents were and how we responded to the environment and the system around us, but also very honest about America as it was and, and both views of that, both the light and the, the joy, as well as the darkness. Yes, and that your honesty and uh, truth seeking and also humor uh, from the voice and eye of a child really came through. You know, this book you're writing, just like your story, just made me laugh and cry at the same time. So thank you. So um, I was also, I'm also very happy to ask you about how you, the, the, the written character of your name, Qian, right? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. My name in Chinese is Qian, which is kind of a complicated character. It's for anyone who speaks Chinese, Qian Kun, it's um, in the the trigrams and Qian is the male force. It's the masculine force. It represents the sky, creative energy, whereas Quin, which is its counterpart, is the female force and represents earth mm -hmm. and a groundedness. Mm -hmm. um, and the most famous person with this name was, of course, Qianlong, who is a probably the most notable emperor in Chinese history. And I remember being a child and asking my parents why I was named this because as I mentioned in the book, it was very hard to write. I was the last person in my Chinese class, my class in China to know how to write my own name because it had so many strokes and was very complex. And they said, um, we named you after the emperor, but also after a poet. I don't know the full name of the poet, but happened to, um, one of my dad's favorite poets was named Qian, something Qian. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, oh, well, that's that's a good, that's a good name. I, I'll try to live up to that heritage. And then as I got older, I was like, wait a minute, both of those people are men. 
And then I started looking into the source of the character and I was like, oh, this is clearly a boy's name. <laughs> um, so yeah, I realized in my teenage years that my parents had probably planned for a boy and got me instead and and had to you know reconcile myself with that. I think as many Chinese daughters have to because there is so much um, really traditional sexism that is passed down in China. But I take it as um, I've been given anything with, I've been lucky cursed with dissident blood. And so the fact that I may have disappointed my parents somewhat in my, in who I am um, only tells me that I I have to work that much harder and be that much stronger to, to make them proud and, and, um, and show that I can live up to that name, even if it was previously bestowed upon two men. Yeah, and I'm sure your parents are so, so proud of you, you know, of uh, in every field, you know, your accomplishment. So your mother, I was just like, awestruck by your mother's beauty and uh, intelligence and strength, right? Um, and. Uh, you know, she's I just she's almost like a Mulan of the American dream, and you did such a beautiful job presenting her as a mother, wife, fighter, dreamer, and fundamentally a Chinese woman. Could you tell us a bit more about her in your own words? Because I know people, you have done such a great job describing her, telling her story in your book. But I'm sure the audience here would love to hear from you in person. I think. You know, as with any child, when you're really young, you see both your parents and probably especially your mother as almost godlike and omnipotent and fully in control. And I wanted to relay that feeling that I had of her. I looked up to her and I just wanted to be her when I grew up. But when we moved to the U.S., I quickly learned that there were limitations because of the language barrier that she faced because I just was able to pick up on the social mores faster as most children are compared to adults. And what I really wanted to capture in the book, and I hope I did her justice, is her indomitable strength. She viewed herself very much through kind of the Chinese lens of women are supposed to cook and be soft and gentle, but she had this internal strength and this gut of what to do when when it came to it and how she needed to protect her family and her daughter and this is something that's not in the book but my mother um thinks that she has not accomplished much in life she has said to me very recently the only amazing thing i've done is raised in her words a brilliant daughter and i was like what are you talking about everything i have is from you i am directly everything I've learned you gave me so early in life and the fundamental thing she gave me was this ability to believe in myself Um, she looked to me and asked questions and in turn I took from her that I had agency that I could get us out of it and and this was something that she had that she knew you know towards the end of the book what was right for our family and just went for it despite all of the risks and terrors and fears and i don't know how she came out the way she did having grown up in such a sexist society such a tumultuous society colored by the cultural revolution Mm -hmm. um 
And from early in life, she she took care of her brothers, her her little brothers, and she's been a caretaker, a natural caretaker, I think, for as long as she can remember. And that's just who she is. So I I always say this, but I wish for every child a wise and strong mother because I had one and it was the deepest blessing and greatest privilege I could ever ask for. Your gratitude and your love for her totally comes through. And I'm not too surprised, you know, um, having written and did research, that's my PhD uh, uh, dissertation, um, foot binding, uh, aching for beauty foot binding in China. And that made me realize how strong Chinese women are and they are our strengths, right? I'm a Chinese woman, you're a Chinese woman, I would say our. Our strengths really came from just like, just like the social pressure or oppression or the structure that is made for men and men only, right? Yeah. And, but we always came through. And because of that, we became very, very, very strong and, um, and thrive faster and more in a way than Chinese men. And once we get out of China, you know, that's- yeah, And one question. thing I wanted to know about my mother was that she grew up with these, this messaging of what women should be, but she never limited me to that definition, which is so easy to do when you've been programmed to impose that on yourself and all other women. She refused to teach me to cook. And I still can't cook because she said, the minute a woman knows how to cook, she's going to do it for the rest of her life for everyone around her. And she told me not to define myself by how I looked, that it was what was inside that truly mattered. And, but also not to judge other women who were felt they had to be defined by their external appearance, because that's just how society, what society does to all of us. So that kind of compassion and wisdom, I don't know where it came from, but like you said, it's, it's generational strength that's passed down in our blood. And, and um, I'm just lucky to, yeah. to be daughter. Yeah. And your writing is just so striking. And um, I'm, what really takes my breath away, you know, the book, the, the powerful opening, all right. And especially the ending, right. And I just feel your inner soul just comes out like a torch. Right. And I, I would love to have you read some if you, we have time. Do you think it's possible? Um, I would prefer just because I don't know how many people have read the book. I don't want to ruin their. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's my only hesitation. Right. Um, but yeah, let. Well, I don't think you actually told much story. It's really almost almost a declaration of who you are, right? In yeah, I mean, I guess I could do the last few paragraphs um, either now or towards the end. Um, yeah, just the last few paragraphs would be, it's just like a poem to me. Um, but, trying to see if there are any spoilers, that's all. <laughs> no, there's no spoiler, <laughs> I don't think. And, uh, but if you don't, we have plenty, I have plenty of questions to ask you, you know, totally up to you. Um, um, yeah, let's let's go to the questions first, and then if we have time, I will. I sure. Will. Yeah. So, so my next question is, um, how is this book changing your life, and what is your plan for the next chapter of your beautiful and brave life? You're still young, right? I'm. Yeah. You know, you only wrote like about a few years, yeah. right, from first grade to uh, graduation and uh, of 
high school and um, but I'm but you have already accomplished so much right and but you just stop there so do you have any plan but the first question is how is this book changing your life it has transformed me and I say that with regard to the act of writing it not even having it come out and be published yeah. because in the act of writing this book I had to revisit my childhood and empathize with my childhood self and allow that child to feel for the very first time all of the emotions that she could not afford to feel mm -hmm. back then and that has been incredibly healing and then while doing that, I've also had to see my parents in a different light for the first time, understand that they were younger than I am now when all of these things happened. And what would I have done if I had been in their shoes and the heroic efforts they went to to build this, these new opportunities and this new life for us and to simultaneously honor both truths that that yeah, maybe sometimes they weren't perfect. Um, and I felt hurt or confused, but also that they were doing the very best that they could. And that understanding and duality has truly transformed my relationship to them. I understand them and I'm able to see them through my childhood lens and through my adult lens and who they are now and who they were then, which are very different as well. And I just have a newfound appreciation for the strength of our family and our love. Mm -hmm. And then when the book came out in the world was when I first gave it to them. Oh, I didn't know how they would react because I think a lot of Chinese people in the audience can relate that Chinese parents don't entirely enjoy, actually, I don't think any parents entirely enjoy having their children write childhood memoirs. Yeah. And they were very afraid, but um, they said they couldn't put it down. They texted me the hours after they got it and they said, that they felt, especially my dad, felt healed by every page. And then later in the week, they said that there was nothing they were afraid of anymore, mm -hmm. which is new and powerful because even the days leading up to publication, I kept thinking, what am I doing? ICE is going to come after us. They're going to deport us, even though we're legal, even though I'm a citizen. That fear never truly ever goes away. And I think... That is really the power of, of childhood and early trauma. So with that, I also, I wanna address your question about the, the narrow window of this book. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't write this book as a vanity project. I didn't want to talk about myself, which I know sounds silly to say because it is a book necessarily about myself. I wanted to examine the universal, universal threads of childhood, the resilience, the joys, the fears, at some point, no matter where we are, were, we were all navigating the world at three, four feet tall, not understanding what was going on and meeting new things and being bossed around by adults while trying to figure out who we were. And I really wanted to look at those years from the only child I had access to myself and understand that thread of humanity. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to honor the immigrant experience yes. and really address the, the heroic heroic and dignified bravery it takes to completely uproot your life and your family and move to an entirely different continent where you don't know anybody yeah. so i wanted to focus on that so i i never i very much do not see beautiful country as a book about me but about um the, the human condition and 
the strength of family. Thank you so much for writing this book. And actually, this leads to my next question, right? And uh, what is your hope for immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers in America and outside America, and those still on the road? And what can America do as a country of immigration to accept them? What can Americans do? We are all children of immigrants to shine some light on their treacherous past, right? And now your career is dedicated to helping immigrants, right? So could you talk a little bit about that? The headlines, especially recently, have been really heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I, it's really sad for me to see how little has changed over the course of my time in America. I think we would all do well to remember what America bills itself as on the international stage, which is that refuge for the lonely and the poor and the oppressed. Um, we, as you say, Ping, are all can all trace our roots to immigrants. And yet, so often in this country, immigration and immigrants become reduced to simple two-dimensional headlines, political talking points with no sense of the humanity behind it and no understanding of what our government has done to create the conditions from which these immigrants are seeking refuge. Um, I think very much like the belief that billionaires cannot become billionaires without necessarily buying into some of the evils of our, our capitalist society. America could not have become what it is today without inflicting some of that exploitation and poverty that other countries are seeing. So I think one, it is our human and moral imperative to take as many refugees and asylees as we can. Secondly, it is our duty given what our government has done on the international stage and especially with regard to Afghanistan and three, uh, is what America is founded on. So we got to walk our walk. If we want to call ourselves the land of the free mm -hmm. and the home of the brave, then why are we not taking the very brave people coming to our shores? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and thank you for doing walking the walk now yourself, you know, helping the new immigrants and uh, and I know um, I was a paralegal for immigration when I was living in New York, and I know how hard this kind of work is, how heartbreaking sometimes. So thank you. So it is, is it true that you wrote this book on the subway? Can you share a bit more about your writing process and how you have juggled all your commitments? It is indeed true. So back then I was um, at a national, a bigger firm representing corporations and uh, wealthy individuals. I was still figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was working probably 80 hours a week and commuting from my apartment in Brooklyn to Manhattan. I really wanted to write this book. I felt like I had a duty to write this book. And not because I, I can speak on behalf of all immigrants or undocumented immigrants. I, I wanted to put shed light on the humanity behind immigration through my very specific and individual story mm -hmm. and destigmatize the status of being undocumented. Mm 
So I felt this burden and like I wasn't doing enough. And every day I would come home at 2 a.m. And, and try to write in front of my computer after sitting in front of my computer at the office all day. And it just wouldn't work because I was too exhausted. And then one day I, I was waiting for the subway and the subway was taking very long as New Yorkers, some New Yorkers can relate to. And I realized that I have these dead pockets of time in my daily commute when I couldn't be on the phone with clients, when I couldn't really be emailing because the reception was limited. Mm -hmm. and I said, what if I just limit my writing time to this hour in the morning and this hour at night? Mm -hmm. so I started writing on my, my phone. And then I noticed too, that the writing came out more easily because I felt like I was just writing notes down to myself instead of formally writing a book. And I think that was part of the block is just whenever I thought about anyone reading it, mm -hmm. how I would feel about these very raw secrets that I had kept mm -hmm. for so long mm -hmm. uh, being available for public consumption and how my parents would feel. Mm -hmm. So I told myself just write on your phone. It's a, it's no, they're notes. Nobody's going to read them. You're probably never going to finish a book this way because who writes a book this way? And the other thing I noticed was when I got off the subway, I was able to focus on my work and not feel guilty all the time. So they were dedicated pockets of time that were for the book. And, and then the rest of the day was, was for my legal work. Mm -hmm. And there were still times, there was like a year where I just didn't write at all because I was so tired and not getting enough sleep. But um, I got to a point in September, 2019, when I said I, I have been working on this book for two, three years now, I still haven't finished it and I feel incredibly guilty. So I gave myself a two month set deadline to still write it in this way, but write as fast as possible and not use the delete button. Mm -hmm. And by December 30th, I had finished the whole book. Wow. Um, and this book truly honestly started on a notes document where I had a bullet list of memories I had. So it would be Marilyn, Tamagotchi, uh, third grade, <laughs> just discrete memories to make sure I hadn't forgotten anything. And then every day at the beginning of my commute, I would open up that document and say, okay, this one speaks to me, or I would finish what I had started um, the day before. And those really became chapter titles yes. in the finished yes. book here. But I, I just, I still can't believe that this book exists that I had finished. I wrote 300 uh, pages on my, on my phone, but whatever you need to do to trick yourself to start writing, I've learned is, is what you got to do. That is really amazing. Actually, that's exact. If I would be still teaching, I would give the same assignment, the, the method of writing to my students. And uh, actually I did give them assignments like write only before you go, you fall asleep or upon, just <laughs> write when you wake up and also um, or when after you get drunk because all kids like to drink right and also after they are extremely tired from exercise or practice a lot of my students were athletes actually that our logic prohibition is yeah. become very loose yeah. that our intuitive thoughts emotion really comes through you know and um, so congratulations for finding a brilliant way of writing a, a, a memoir. Is this the, uh, are you going to write the second one, second book using the same method? <laughs> yeah, so right now I'm I'm probably going to write a second memoir down the line. Right now I'm working on a novel, which is easier because it's less 
like heartbreaking and it's a little bit more fun. Um, but I am, I, I still find that I write faster on the phone and you're right, Ping, it's that my critical self-editor seems to me more asleep yeah. when I'm kind of on the, on the road or on my phone. She doesn't think that I'm actually writing anything that anyone will be reading. And that's, that's what you need. And late at night is, is also a time that I found really productive. Yeah. So you basically live two lives, four lives, right? <laughs> and you wrote it almost in dreams, which actually our dream world, you know, uh, is more powerful in many ways, you know, and yeah. you don't intuitively latch on that dream world to create your true life, your true story. Thank no, you. our intuition, our intuitive selves have more wisdom than we give them credit for. That's for right. Sure. Yeah. So um, actually, I have another question on Facebook. And can you speak more on the power of libraries and books and how they have shaped your life? I love that question. Mm. But when I got to America in 1994, I was seven years old and I the only English word I knew was apple even though my dad was an English literature professor in China, I just, he left when I was five and my mom didn't want to teach me the wrong accent or way of pronouncing. And she didn't know that much anyway. Mm -hmm. So I knew nothing. And I was thrown into a school where most Chinese people spoke Cantonese. Um, I was lucky in that there were other Chinese people around me. So at least I looked like them, but no one could really communicate with me. And I quickly learned that the fastest and easiest way to dodge suspicion, particularly with regard to authority about my immigration status was to learn English, learn to speak English fluently and like a native speaker. Then I could claim, like my father always warned me, claim that you were born here and then they won't ask any questions. Mm -hmm. So I knew that literacy was my way out and how I embraced that was through my public library in Chatham Square which is the East Broadway um, branch in Chinatown, mm -hmm. New York City. I remember going in there and just marveling that there were so many books accessible for free. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know if I had been to a library in China. I don't think I had. I don't know what libraries are like in China. I only went to bookstores, but the fact that I could be in there and take any book and read it, or I could just stay there and read it. Mm -hmm just opened up this whole new world for me. I was this child who had been used to being around her grandparents and her aunts and uncles, and they were all of a sudden gone. And so it felt like my life was very empty and lonely. But here comes this haven of books with characters in them, like Clifford the Big Red Dog and Amelia Bedelia and the entire cast of the Babysitter's Club. So I just threw myself into it. I, I grabbed onto every book that came my way and worked my way through words, um, especially first with the kind of books that have buttons on them. So you press it and it pronounces the word for you. Those were really helpful. Mm -hmm. But it was in that universe that I built my first American home. And I also got a lot of insight into what it was like to be, you know, the normal American kid, because back then in the 90s, there weren't a lot of books about mm -hmm. people who looked like me or people who lived the lives that my parents and I lived. But it, it felt nice to have that escape into normalcy, into this world where people babysat and did homework and all lived with in quarters of each other and, and didn't have to worry about deportation. Right. So to this day, I think libraries are, are too underestimated for the importance they bring to communities, especially communities and children who don't have access to resources. As soon as I was able at 16, I worked 
at a library. Um, repairing books was my favorite thing, but also organizing books. That was my thing even when I didn't work at a library. I'd just go and organize the books and get in trouble. But I am just so grateful to librarians for everything they do for the community, for supporting authors and readers, and most of all, for giving children like me the access and home we so sorely needed. Yes, and uh, your, your reading level definitely shines through your writing. And um, you know, I remember very clearly when I wrote my first story in Beijing University, I never started writing whatever, it's just an assignment. And I wrote the story of chicken and duck and my American professor, Mrs. Stoffer, she said, you must have done a lot of reading, don't you? Didn't you? And I nodded, right? Yeah. And my way of reading is actually, um, I grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. And uh, when I was second grade, the, uh, the, all the books were burned and library was sealed and classroom was just no school, right? No, nothing. And my dream was to go to college, you know, at a very young age. And I, I would break into sealed libraries to read books. And I was beaten a lot for reading, for doing that and reading banned books. But when my American professor told me that you must have read a lot of books and it just like all the pain, yeah. right? And uh, just like, this is my reward. My father tells me when he was little, he hid books under the floorboards because the homes would be checked and ransacked for banned books, especially. Yeah. And yeah. he would read it by candlelight in the dark. Yeah. And that was when he first dreamed of, of a place where you could be more vocal about what you believed and what you saw in your country. Yeah, and I hope like books will last forever. And thank you so much for all the libraries, you know, especially hosting this event and invite you here. And then the Hennepin County, I also have a funny story. You know, Hennepin County uh, is one of the most beautiful libraries actually i would say on uh, in this world uh it was the the it was the last construction or reconstruction uh was done 2000 uh in 2000 and they invited me to write a story for the groundbreaking and i wrote the book war about my experience growing up in china you know uh, stealing books and <laughs> breaking to seal libraries to read banned books and uh, the story is still hanging on the library wall, you know, believe it or not. And uh, so, yeah, and we, no matter what happens, I hope, I really just pray books, you know, would last forever and libraries would, you know, uh, exist in our, in our lives for the next and next and next generations, you know, all fields, yeah. So um, we still have time. So I have more questions from um, um, other librarians, actually. Um, as a first time author, did you have difficulty bringing your story to print? What surprised you most about the journey to being a published author? So I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear your story. Uh being a first time anything is terrifying because you've never done it before. So how do you know you can do it? I didn't know if I had what it took to write a book. I admired books all my life. They were on a pedestal. They were the 
holiest thing in my mind. So how could I dare to create one? Um, so I was surprised, as I mentioned earlier, that I even wrote, I was able to write one at all. But the biggest surprise to me has been so far how much people relate to the book who have not even necessarily immigrated, have not even moved states. I was really bracing for a lot of xenophobia and racism because I'm a jaded lawyer and I just learned to expect that. And there has, nothing is ever without that, I think, um, one day maybe. But for for the large part, people have been incredibly welcoming. They have, I have gotten emails from women and men in Texas and Kansas and all over the country saying, I've never even left America, but this part and this part of your book brought back for me these memories of my childhood and I find a sense of solace and healing from them. And it just really gives me hope that we are more similar than we recognize. And I had written this book with that idea in mind, but even I could not have anticipated how very true that was. And if nothing else, it tells me that these labels that we put on each other and on ourselves are really superficial and you know at the end of the day we are all human with similar dreams and wants and longings right yeah um someone else also asked uh, this question um congrats on being a read with jenna book club pick what is involved with being selected and how did you learn the exciting news inside scoop <laughs> <laughs> My amazing publicists at Doubleday, Todd Doughty and Elena Hershey were on this. I was not even really aware of, well, I was aware of Oprah Book Club and Read with Jenna and Reese, Reese's Book Club, but I didn't even think that I would be eligible or on the radar. It was not even in my scope of what I dreamed for this book, I was mostly just hyperventilating, thinking about coming out in the world. So I didn't even have the bandwidth, but Todd and Elena were on the case very early on. I think, I believe as early as December or January, December, 2020, January, 2021, they were in touch with the Read With Jenna team and the other book club teams. And in February, I got the news that I was chosen for September. So. Everything in publishing has a huge lead up, which I had no idea because everything in law is very quick turnaround. Often you're working with very short deadlines. So it's been a complete about face entering this industry. But then of course, um, something I am familiar with in law is that I had to keep it a secret for seven months. And I had written a book of secrets. And then I had this other big secret that I wanted, I was bursting to share with everyone that I couldn't share with. Um, but, and then we filmed the segment on the Today Show in July, and that was just delightful. Uh, but yeah, the process is, has a huge lead up to it. And as far as I can tell, Jenna reads all of the submissions herself. She reads everything. She, when she showed up to our segment, she had the very first galley of my book ever printed and had been dog-eared. It looked like it had been read a hundred times. She said, I just read it again. It was my third time. And she had a whole legal pad full of notes and questions. Yeah. So I always thought Jenna had great taste and I promise I would say this even if she didn't choose my book, but she really inspired me with, with how thoroughly she thinks about her platform and how she can help 
new authors and and important issues mm -hmm. discussed in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I've just been remarkably lucky in this whole process. Well, it's about time. <laughs> Your name is fully coming true, you know, <laughs> the force of the sky, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in representative of Chinese woman and also immigration, uh, immigrants and uh, as American citizen now. So uh, I have you ever written in Chinese? I unfortunately lost the ability to write. I mean, I, I can write my name and it looks like a five year old is writing it just because I don't use it that much. I try to reclaim it through in college. I minored in Chinese and try to write more characters in those classes, but I never use it. So it's very hard for me. And one day I would love maybe with my future children to take classes in which we can all learn to write well, but I speak like a native speaker. So when I'm in China, people think I have lived there my whole life, but then they'll say oh, they use a slang or an idiom and I won't know what it is. And I'll just look at them blankly. And so they'll think I'm kind of slow, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I actually didn't grow up here. So I have no idea what you're talking about. So it's a real disconnect where I'm able to speak and trick people into thinking that I'm Chinese. But then if you look at my writing, you're like, oh, this person can cannot. You can you read? In not really. Um, very more than I can write, but not really. And I can do pinyin very well. So texting is easier for me because I can put in the pinyin and recognize the characters from memory. But right. if you told me to write out the characters, it would be a very different, very it different. It would be, yeah, 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 yeah. Chinese character is um, a hands-on. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> but it's a marvelous language that is so good for the brain networking, yeah. wiring, and I hope your children. We'll learn Chinese. Oh, I'll make sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be that yeah. annoying mother making them go to yeah. Chinese. Yeah. So do we have more questions from there's one more that just came in. Okay, hold on. A new question from Facebook. What can we do to send a message to the publishing industry that we want more underrepresented stories? I think as librarians you, I think you probably have connections within the industry and I'm just guessing because I'm I don't know but I would hope that the industry is listening to you most of all in terms of what books that you see is needed in your communities and whoever your sales reps are contacts are if you could just share with them what you're seeing in your patrons and the people who are coming in and what they look like and what they're dealing with in their everyday life I think that would go a long ways towards um, ensuring that publishing brings more of marginalized stories to light. But the, but on the other end, you are directly responsible for my book because I learned the power of storytelling and narrative in the library. It was the safety net for me. And I knew that if I could learn to tell my story in a way that could empower me and empower others, then I could maybe change the narrative that this nation has on, on people like us. It's really the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that matters. And just know that every day you are out there in the community talking to children, talking to teenagers, talking to young adults, even grown up adults, new immigrants, and sharing with them words of empowerment, either through a book or just by your presence and warmth and your suggestions. Mm -hmm. It's making more difference than you can ever fathom. So I just want to thank you all 
for everything you do on, on a daily basis because you are already making this shift happen. Thank you. And uh, uh, there's another question. Um, <laughs> so they want to know, they're curious about how your books are stacked behind you <laughs> and how you organize them and what books do you want to recommend to, to us. Uh, I wish that these were better organized. So what you don't see are the books under the couch and the books all along this wall. I don't have, I live in New York City in Brooklyn, so we don't have much space. And my husband and I both have a lot of books. In the perfect world, I would have a full wall of books organized by color. I know that's controversial. <laughs> it goes against the Dewey Decimal System, but I just think aesthetically, uh, they just look better. And also I remember covers way better than, you know, or alphabetically, it's just, it's, it's too much work. Mm -hmm. um, but this row here is all book of the month and like new releases that I couldn't wait to, for usually I wait for paperback or back then when I was struggling for money, I did. Um, so for instance, all the light, we cannot see in Goldfinch, all of the really big release hardcovers. And then over there, all the classics at the very top of this stack, there's um, a tin box you'll see at the top. That is a collection of uh, first edition Babysitter's Club books mm -hmm. with the original covers mm -hmm. um, that my best friend from law school tracked down for me on the internet for my birthday. And I still read them. Uh, they still bring me the sense of safety and home. And I don't think, I suspect it will never change. Right. But new books I rec um, rec recommend, I think the most powerful or eye-opening book I read this year has been Detransition Baby um, by Tori Peters. It was nominated for the Women's Prize. It's um, about an individual who transitions to being a woman, then detransitions to being a man, and then has a baby with someone, and then tries to raise it with um, his ex girlfriend and it just really opened my eyes to the privilege that I have being cisgender mm -hmm. and not having to think about what I present as and what my gender is and I of course think about it in other realms in terms of cultural and cultural names and, and race but this was kind of one um, blind spot in my experience that I didn't have insight to and I think Tori Peters really brilliantly depicts what it's like and and um, I felt these visceral emotions right. of what these characters were going through. Right. Well, I have more millions of more questions to ask you, but uh, unfortunately, uh, oh, we have we still have six minutes. <laughs> Do you think you can read uh, that ending, just one paragraph? Yeah, I mean, to get people more excited. Even you, I know everyone is really excited. But that's just like so passionate, you know, um, just one paragraph. If you don't want spoilers, turn off your <laughs> stream now. No, I don't think well, that has, uh, Yeah, no, there, there's not, there's not a lot, but if you, if you're someone, I, so I always read the last page of a book first before I start it, but I'm kind of weird that way. And I know some people, I, that. I'm the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but some people can't do that. So right. you don't want to hear it. Um, you can come back and revisit this video when you're done. Um, okay. It comes to me clearest in the first seconds of every morning. Upon opening my eyes, I forget who I am and how I've come to chase this life. And then I see her, 
the little girl in the corner of my bedroom, still scared, still starving. I look past her and out the window with my mind roaming beyond the Hudson River and into Jersey City through the door of the condominium unit where Mama and Baba now live, apparently free and safe, but really behind bars wrought from trauma. And then I slide forward in time and see myself many decades older, hair gray and skin loose, behind those same bars myself, the little girl still cowering next to me. I repeat the judge's words. It has become a daily morning practice, but this time, after almost a year, I feel the lie slip away through the weave of my mantra. My muscles lose a tightness I did not know they had been carrying. And against the backdrop of my truths, I am at long last free to admit, I am tired. I am so very tired of running and hiding, but I have done it for so long. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to do anything else. It is all I am defining myself against illegality while stitching it into my veins. The judge's words are my blanket nest and in its snug embrace, I rediscover a safety I knew once long, long ago. I turn back to the window and see for the first time, the little girl cast a glow against the light of the waking sun. And then I try something new I look that wise little girl in the eyes and reach my hand out for hers. Thank you. This is just so beautiful and powerful. And I can see why you feel free after writing this book and why your parents feel free after reading this book. And this is story has to be that has to be told, right? And uh, so thank you, and uh, thank you so much for coming, uh, taking your time to come to us. I know your life is just completely busy, you know, uh, in two worlds, your law practice and your new life as an author and a bestseller. So we wish you best luck, Julie, uh, Chen Julie, and for, um, for congratulations, first of all, and the, uh, the best luck for your you know, next chapter, many chapters of your new life and have really have fun. I know from reading your book, it's just so full of delight, the pockets mm -hmm. of delight and joy and humor. I think that's also what keep kept you alive and thriving, you know, and uh, I'm sure it will continue doing so. And I just want to thank you, Ping, for your thoughtful questions and engagement. It's been truly a delight to meet you. I read your book of poetry that you generously shared with me. And, and I think you. what you write about is, is so deep and, and true and has so much in common with what I write about. So I hope that we um, collaborate somehow yes. online. Yeah. And yes. I want to yeah, thank everybody, librarians, readers, everyone. As a lifelong reader, I know what it means for someone to choose to spend time with a book. And I just want to thank you all for choosing to spend your precious time uh, if only a little bit with with mine. Thank you. And in the end, it's, um, you know, in the end, it's our story uh, that makes history that will last in the end. So thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. And uh, I will say goodbye to Chen Julie, and I would like to conclude this event um, 
That's all we have time for this evening. Thanks again, Chen Julie, for telling us your story, which is exactly what makes America a beautiful country, Meiguo. I hope every American has a chance to read this book because it is also our story. Have a great night, everyone. May your dreams are filled with peace and hope. Thank you. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library event with Chen Julie Wong. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Rita Woods. Rita Woods is the author behind Remembrance, one of the most celebrated historical fiction debuts in years. Woods' opus straddles literary genres and historical epics. The titular settlement is a hollowed refuge for escaped slaves which exists outside the normal bounds of time and space. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.